Welcome to Core 242 Podcast, brought to you by Core Community Covenant Church. Now let's dive into the Word of God with Pastor Max and Pastor Trish. Well, amen. Uh, We're so excited to continue this journey to the cross uh, through the Gospels, uh, through seeing what Jesus was going through and what was happening all around him. Uh, Last week, we went through the, the journey started the journey of the cross in John chapter 11, where Jesus um, raises Lazarus from the dead. And we just saw this amazing emotion. The, the big one that we looked into is that deeply moved, right? We, we talked that and that word of, of indignant. Thank you. Really good word that, that really spoke to us that it wasn't because when we, look, we looked at that word, it's like deep moved. It's like we felt like it was just very emotional, but there was so much more behind it. Uh, so it, it was a great time to look at it. And today we're going to just move on. We're going to be we're going to start off in John chapter 12. So if you guys can open your books there and we're going to go, we're going to move forward on his journey. And as soon as God put on our hearts to do this journey to the cross, one of the first things that my wife said, I don't want to do the triumphant entry. Way to throw me under the bus. Totally going to throw you under the bus. Um, <laughs> because that, she's like, no, you know, it's just, it's yeah. just something that, that, no. that always have. Mm-hmm. They always teach that. Let's do something else. And we had everything planned out. But the Lord took us to a different direction, which was triumphal entry, which we're going to talk about today. And we're also going to talk. And then we're also going to talk about Jesus' weeping over the Jerusalem. So that's kind of the two places that we're going to look into and uh, discuss today. And we're praying that God is going to speak to you as we see what, what's happening in Jesus' life in this time and also reflect on how does that look like for us. Right? Do you have any pre? No. So let's read. We're going to read, read through the text so that way everybody's familiar with with the text and then we're going to break break down some of the things in this text so we're going to start at john 12 12. so again just to remind you guys from last week right before then chapter 12 we read it yes last week we actually went through um we read it four different times and picked a different points each and every time of how the scripture was speaking to us. But again, remember, this was the time where Mary anoints Jesus for his burial with a perfume and everything else. And she wipes his feet with her hair. And, uh, and he reminds them how beautiful it was for, for her to do that. And then we also talked about how at that point, the chief priest wanted to kill Jesus and wanted to kill Lazarus because of the testimony that he had. And I think we all connected with Lazarus at that point as we had the discussions. So now we're coming into the triumphal entry uh, in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, blesses the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So this is where this is where we're gonna look into for most of the time. We're gonna dive into all these things that is happening and understanding how prophetic 
and how meaningful it really is for him, for what they were saying and for what he did in those very little three verses. So before we get into this text, I want to read a, a, a little excerpt from 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, this story has not traditionally been connected to what we're seeing in John chapter 12, but it should be because there's a lot of parallels to what happens here. We see that David, who was King David, uh, was near the end of his life. And the time comes for him to pass on the kingdom to one of his sons. And he chooses his son Solomon to be king. And we know that Jesus, there's already a parallel because Jesus was a descendant of David. And he, they were, the Messiah was promised to be a son of David. So there's this, this lineage that happens with the royal line um, that is being reflected here in John chapter 12. And if you go to 1 Kings chapter 1, we'll start in verse 32. It says, King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoda. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servants with you, set my son Solomon on my own mule, and take him down to Gilead. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, Long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him. He is to come to my place and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. And then it says in verse 38, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoda, the Carathites and the Pelathites, went down and put Solomon on King David's mule and escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent, anointed Solomon. They sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing flutes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. So what what is happening here is that you have the anointing, which Jesus was just anointed. You have the anointing of a new king. And the way that the tradition was... You know, from a Roman perspective, part of the reasons the Romans weren't upset by all this was because from a Roman tradition, they would have had the new king escorted in on horses, right? And we know this. And so even from our perspective, you would think we've often heard when you talk about Palm Sunday that Jesus came in lowly on a donkey. And there is some prophetic nature to that. So when the, when the Romans saw this, they kind of thought it was a, a spectacle. They thought it was a joke. But from a Jewish perspective, from a Near East perspective, This was how the kings of Israel were presented um, and they were inaugurated into their kingdom. So you see that Solomon was not placed on a horse. He was actually placed on a mule. And mules are slightly bigger than donkeys, but more or less, they're the same animal. A mule is actually a hybrid of a horse and a donkey. So he was not brought in on some gallant horse. He was brought in on a mule and the people go before him and they celebrate and they rejoice. So when Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem on this donkey, he is, it's not just the people that are saying, he is making a statement that I am your king as he comes in. And so they're celebrating because they're like, finally, they've been wanting him to be king. They've been wanting him to declare his kingdom. So this is a public declaration on Jesus's part that he is the king that they have been waiting for. So that's what we're seeing here with when it, he comes in on a donkey. Um, and just to help understand, so we see in 2 Samuel uh, 16.2, there's another uh, illustration where they bring donkeys for the king and the king's sons to ride on. So it was regular custom in Israel that, that the, the donkeys were considered the animal for royalty. 
So this is what the kings would write on. And part of the reason for this is in Deuteronomy 17, 16, you can make a note of it. We're not going to read it. But God actually prohibits the people of Israel from having horses. They're not allowed to have horses because horses came from Egypt. And God says, I delivered you from Egypt and I want you to have nothing to do with Egypt. Mm -hmm. So your kings are not to acquire horses. They are not to. So in, in lieu of that, the donkey became, because it was this larger animal and it was a beast of burden, became this illustration of what the Jewish kings, what the Israelite kings would ride on. Um, and this was how they would inaugurate their kings. And part of where you see the downfall of, of Israel is also in 1 Kings. I have it here. 1 Kings chapter 10. You have it? No, I don't. First Kings chapter 10, we see the, the start of the downfall of the kingdom of Israel, and it starts in verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. And in verse 28, it says Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Q. The royal merchants purchased them from Q. So we see that the downfall of Israel actually happens. The horses were this symbol of an alliance with Egypt. So the horses in and of themselves weren't necessarily anything wrong, but the horses came from Egypt. And so it was instead of relying on God to fight their battles, instead of relying on God to give them victory, they were relying on military might. They were relying on these alliances with foreign powers. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus comes in, he is making a statement that he is restoring Israel back to the way things were intended, back under what God originally ordained, and that he is the true son of David who is coming to establish his throne. Yeah, and the the great thing about this, this is prophesized. Again, prophecy, I want you guys to go to Zechariah chapter 9. And they, he, they quoted right here in John, but I want to go actually and read it in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9. And we'll read 9 and 10. So in verse 9, it starts off with, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. So it's just this amazing prophecy they're talking about that there's he's righteous, he has salvation, and he's gentle. And, and church just said that, like, oh, we feel so sad that Jesus came lowly on a donkey, but it's actually a very powerful thing. It's it's again, it's this amazing prophecy that our king is gonna come on the donkey. And verse 10, and this is why I went, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So it's, he's coming there. The, this king is coming there. He's coming with salvation. And then it's also reminding he's also coming with peace. He's there to bring peace unto, unto Jerusalem. Because again, they're thinking he's coming, he's bringing war. He's going to be this army general who's going to take over, and he's coming here at peace. Now he comes again. Yeah. <laughs> so, he comes on a horse the second time. He's coming on the horse the second time. So, but this one, is, is co he's coming with peace. So again, this prophecy is guiding us to what Jesus is trying to do for the people of Jerusalem, for the people of Israel. 
it's so that that's just just this little part of just him coming on donkeys it has so much power in it so much meaning and uh, prophecy behind it so it's not just hey let's put him on a donkey because it's the only thing we had available and if you looked at other other um, gospels because you see this in matthew chapter 21 mark 11 and luke 19 they even describe how the, how he got this here and john he just kind of says oh and he gets a young donkey and in, uh, in other other gospels it's like all right you're gonna go and you're gonna find a donkey right, right next to his mother and it's never been written. Like, they go way more deep into the into the conversations, but here we're just young donkey. But it was very important that donkey was a big part of it. And it's interesting that donkeys are used a lot for some for some reason in, in the in the Bible. But so even a donkey can can be powerful. There's actually a connection between the donkey and the prophetic, just the same way that uh, you know you see the prophet who was going to curse Jerusalem and I mean to curse the people of Israel and the donkey right stops him and And speaks to to him the donkey actually is prophetic so there's there's an underlying thread but that gets away from the point of the sermon at first his disciples did not understand all this only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him so even at the time it was just kind of like they were caught up in the moment and only later did they realize oh my goodness this fulfilled all of these things that we were waiting for, like this was such a clear sign of who he was and what he was trying to do, but we missed it. So what, what do they shout? They shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So Hosanna means save us. So they're actually crying out for the Messiah to save us. Now what they were expecting was a, a military saving they were expecting that the nation of israel would be restored they didn't realize that they were actually crying out uh, for something much deeper which is that he was going to bring salvation from sin and he was going to overcome the power of evil and death but then it says blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and some of you may have a little footnote in your scripture uh, that says psalm 118 25 and 26 so we're going to read that Psalm 118.25 says, O Lord, save us. In other words, Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So what they're shouting is almost verbatim from what comes from Psalm 118. And the layers here with this is that Psalm 118 During the Feast of Passover, it is tradition uh, that the Jewish people would recite what's called the Hallel prayer. And that was a reading of Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So remember, this is during the coming of the Passover feast. So this was a traditional text that they they would read aloud and they would pray. And Psalm 118 is part of that. And this was a foretelling, a foreshadowing of what they were looking for in the Messiah. So the people are boldly and literally proclaiming, this is the Messiah who was to come. And they're, they're quoting this Passover verse, this traditional prayer, which is part of Psalm 118, and they're praying it and shouting it over Jesus himself. So it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. So this is an, another prophecy. So not only are they quoting scripture, but it's a prophecy that's being fulfilled. Uh, and again, they, they don't even realize what they're doing at this point. So I, Psalm 22, crucifixion. So again, he he comes in, and because he's riding on a donkey, he's proclaiming that he's king. Now then, they are quoting 
Psalm 118, proclaiming him as king. And then as we, as we read further on in John 18 and 19, when he's coming before the Pilate, the Pilate himself proclaims him as king. And not only he questions him, and Jesus kind of like, it is as you said, and my kingdom is not of this world. But then Pilate has such conviction that he actually puts the sign over Jesus on the cross that he is the king of the Jews. So there's this proclamation without, without actual all this court and order or anything like that. It was just this, um, it happens. The prophecy has happened. He did everything that the prophecy has done. The people himself, the, the governor, government himself has proclaimed him. He is the king. He, he is the one. And yet he goes on the cross. Right. Right. And this is important because the same way that we talked about when, with the moment with Lazarus last week was this turning point where Jesus starts his journey to the cross. This is the decisive moment. You know, Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Um, and he consistently tells them, repent for the kingdom of God is near. This is a decisive moment here where the the language shifts because this is literally the inauguration of the kingdom. So it's not the kingdom of God is near. It's this is the start of the kingdom of God right here. And now what are they going to do with it? And we haven't got into, as you read this text, it really doesn't say anything about what Jesus' emotions are. You would think that in this moment, he's celebrating, he feels really loved, he, you know, this is great that they're worshiping him and they're all excited, and he's just kind of coming in in his own sort of glory. But that's not actually what is happening here at all. So we're going to get into Luke chapter 19, and we're going to actually look at what was Jesus' actual emotion as this was taking place. So if you want to turn to John, uh, Luke chapter 19. Yeah, and again, we're, we're just continuing this, one, this, um, this journey that he's going through. As you can see, right in John chapter, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 19, we're going to be looking in verses 41 through 44, which is uh, Jesus', Jesus lament over Jerusalem. But right ahead, if you look at verses 38, this is where there blesses the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're shouting. This is his triumphal entry. So we're just kind of moving forward to it just in a different gospel. Uh, and even you see this verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples, all those people who are hailing him as the king. And he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It's like, there's no, there's no way to stop this. It is moving forward. It is moving forward. And you guys remember, the reason he's saying stones, is not literally the stones are going to start speaking, but it's the witness that the, stone, the stones are going to witness. It's the stones that, that the people of Israel had, would put, put on every time God spoke to them. It's the stones that they left out after they crossed the Jordan. It's the stones that, that, that are in different places, even the, when they would make wells, right? If what Jesus spoke, spoke to the Samaritan woman, that well was a testimony of what was happening. So those are the rocks that are going to be crying out. The temple itself is going to cry out of who God is. Right. And this is, again, just a reminder, the temple that he's looking over and everything else. It's the second temple that had no ark, had didn't have God's presence in it. It was, it was just there. But it's going to cry out. It's going to cry out. And it's, it's just an ama- amazing part. So we're going to get into 41. I'll read through 41 through 44 and then we'll get into it. 
As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even had only, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an, an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Trish just kind of introduced us to this time. He came in riding on a, on a donkey, proclaiming his king, and he's saying the kingdom is here. He's been, he's been preaching all, all this time. Kingdom is near. Repent. Kingdom is near. Repent. Kingdom is near. He sends out his disciples. Go out and tell them the kingdom is near. Repent. And now this is where he's at. This is why he looks over Jerusalem and starts weeping. It's this, again, it's this emotional part of him where he's, where he's between Jesus the man and Jesus the son of God. The emotions that he's seeing for, for the people of Israel is so hard because he's weeping. He's like, he, they missed it. They have missed it. I've been preaching to them. I've been telling them to repent so they can come into the kingdom of God. And they've missed it. So that's why there's, there's this crying. And now here's, here's the son of God. He's warning if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And remember in Zechariah, he said, I'm coming and I'm coming, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the king, and I'm going to bring you peace, right? So he's saying this, what, what was that peace was me, and you missed it. And now it is hidden from your eyes. The time of repentance is over. And as, we, as you read through after this, his parables become different. His teachings become different. It's, now it's more of a judgment time. Now it's more of like you missed it. He, he talks about the parable of, of a man planting a seed and he, sent, uh, he lets somebody else take care of his, his plantation, right? And then he brings his, son, his sons and his servants and everything else that they kill him and they miss it. And what happens? The owner comes and kills them all, right? right? So he's like, now it's a different changes. <laughs> now it's different changes. Uh, the Roman sacking in 70 AD, isn't that what he's talking about here? About yes. Oh, exactly, he, yeah. He's not talking about his body yet in about three days. No, no, no. And the, the, making sure. Exactly. And, and the, so verse 43 and 44 is exactly talking about that. Okay. Uh, that what's, what's going to happen in 70 AD when Romans just come in and just destroy and, and everything. Because there was gold. That's why all rocks were left, not left undone, because if there was gold in the wall and they lifted up every brick of the temple to get to the gold inside the wall. So he told it precisely, Jesus, you know. Like he knew. <laughs> like he knew. <laughs> so a couple things about this is he, he weeps over the city. So we see that while the people are rejoicing, he is actually in a place of grief. Sure. So he is weeping over the city because <clears throat> what we see here is that, that, that word that is... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And we see that fulfilled here where they're singing and dancing and they're worshiping and they're so excited, but their hearts are far from God. And so Jesus is brought to this place of weeping when in fact it should have been the other way that he's been saying over and over again, repent, repent, repent. And if when he had come, they had repented instead, that would have been the terms of peace. 
That is what Jesus was looking for. He, they're celebrating because they believe that because they're children of Abraham, because they're the people of Israel, they're automatically in the kingdom. And he has been saying over and over again that, that the true children of Abraham are those who submit to the Lord. The true children of Abraham are those who obey. The true children of Abraham would be the ones who would recognize me and repent. And they're not doing that. Um, not only are the people not doing that, but especially the teachers of the law. And where in, uh, in the Luke version of the triumphal entry, it actually says the disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So they're not worshiping him because of who he is. They're worshiping him because of what he has done. And that is a huge difference, something that we need to honestly reflect on and something that we need to absorb is what does our worship look like? Why are we worshiping? Are we worshiping God because of the good things he has done? He is worthy of our worship because he's done good things. Or are we worshiping? Are we drawing close to him because of who he is in our lives? Because we desire his presence. Are we looking for him to do things for us? And we think that if we worship and we pray, we can somehow manipulate him to give us what we want. Mm -hmm. Or do we worship and do we pray because we want to draw close to his heart? Mm -hmm. And this is why Jesus is weeping because he sees that their worship and their praise is hollow. There's no repentance behind it. Yeah, I, again, in Luke uh, chapter 13, uh, it's another, this lament comes around and, and you see Jesus' heart for Jerusalem. And it's so poetic and so just, uh, you, you see his heart. It says in Luke 13, 34 and 35, it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as hand gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to your desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, you just see so much compassion and love but at the same time it's like so much so much understanding that hey you're going to be judged you're there's going to be consequences because of the rejection i wanted i i came here i love you i want to do all these things for you and you have rejected that and now there's going to be consequences right so the the tricky part is is when we look at something like this you know we see that god is sovereign um, and God knows all things. He also gives us a choice. So the prophecies that happened were because God already knew what we were going to choose. But we don't know that. So from the people's perspective, Jesus continues to put the choice before them to choose. Will you choose life or will you choose death? Will you choose to receive me or will you choose to reject me? And he's consistently putting this in front of them. And over and over and over again, I mean, people leave him when he makes hard statements. They don't, you know, when, when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's trying to explain to them that it's a, a preface of what would happen with the Lord's Supper. And he's explaining that his death is the only means by which they can come to know, come to know the Lord. But what happens is, is when we hear God's voice, when Jesus is proclaiming this time and time again, and they're not receiving it, what happens is that their hearts start to become hardened. And we see in Hebrews chapter two, it says, today, if you hear his voice, this is verse seven, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then again, in verse 12, it says, see to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And then a third time in verse 15, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. 
And what happens is that when we hear, when we hear the word of the Lord, we have a decision. Will we submit to that word or will we reject that word? And when we reject the word, our hearts start to become hardened. And each time we're presented with the word of God, each time God speaks to us, if we choose to obey, our hearts become softened. If we choose to disregard, our hearts become hardened. And this consistent pattern happens when you reject and reject and reject. And this is what we're seeing in Luke chapter 19, is that Jesus has put this choice in front of them so many times that their hearts have become hardened and they don't recognize the time of his coming. They don't recognize who he is and what he is doing. They outwardly recognize that he's a king, but inwardly they don't realize the significance of the times. And because of that, he says, if you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The same thing happened with Pharaoh in Egypt is that over and over again, you see that the, Moses warns him and he's given a choice to set the people free or not. And Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart. And eventually there's actually a shift in the language and it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain, God already knows what path you're going to choose. And eventually he hands you over to your unrepentance. He hands you over mm-hmm. to this hardening of your heart. And so here, because they have chosen this path, because they have not chosen the path of repentance. This is the moment where he declares himself king. And this is the moment where he declares judgment on the people that now they will no longer be able to see. And he knows that his death is inevitable at this point. Before he knew because he knew what the people would choose, but now it's set in motion. There is no turning back. At this point, they've declared him king, but they're going to crucify the very king that they have just proclaimed. So the clock is ticking and we know that the countdown has already begun and we see that now it's inevitable because God has brought judgment and he has closed their eyes so they can no longer recognize who he is. And as my husband said, the language in, in the parables and things that he shares after this in some of the gospels, the language is very different from the stories he was telling before where he was talking a lot about the kingdom. There's woes that are spoken. There's some... Um, There's talk about wicked servants who are cast out of the kingdom. So his tone becomes very different from this point forward. Yeah, and just kind of bringing that to us at this point, in Romans chapter 1, 21, uh, all the way to 25, I just want to read that because this is what the people of Israel has gone through. And this is sometimes that could be something that we might go through. And there's going to be consequences. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over into their sinful desires of their hearts. That's that's the danger of when we take take away God out of our life and actually having a full desire for him, full repentance of what we're going through, fully focusing on him and not what the world has for us. And again, even even if it's in our churches, even if it's I mean, we call it God thing, but it's not really because it becomes a more of a worldly thing than what God is. And that's a, that's a hard thing. 25 says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worship and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Amen. So that, that is, we see this big warning and we can look at the people of Israel like, how could you miss it? How could you miss it? Look at that. And now you guys are going through the consequences. 
right? And we, we've, we just mentioned it earlier. The consequences, what he prophesied in 43, 44, happened just uh, about 40 years later when the Romans just came and just destroyed, destroyed everything, right? So there's the same consequences for us of those who are believers nowadays, that if we keep on hardening in our hearts, God keeps on pointing us in the right direction, and we harden our hearts and point in our direction, it's going to be a point to where he's just going to give you into your desire, and there's going to be consequences. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And there's not going to be a return. And I love the when Trish mentioned about, about Pharaoh, you guys remember the, there was all those plagues. The first, first few plagues, Pharaoh himself hardened his heart. Right. And then later on, God hardened his heart because he was like, you know, I gave you all those chances to soften your heart and let my people go. But now you're going to experience my consequences. Now all the first burns are going to die. All your all your plants are going to die. All, now it becomes more painful. And it's, we're going to experience the same thing if we keep on not hearing the, the warning of, of Christ and the teaching of him and keep on hardening on our hearts when God speaks to us and we don't listen. He's going to just release us into our own desire, which is not going to lead. It's going to lead us away from him instead of towards him. So just on a final note, what we see as a pattern through First and Second Kings, through First and Second Chronicles, is that there's a new king who's inaugurated. And the first decision they have to make is whether they will walk in the footsteps of David mm-hmm. or whether they will walk in the footsteps of the wicked kings. And the way this is determined is how they respond to the disobedience and to the idolatry that's happening in the nation. So next week, we're going to look at the story of how that plays out in Jesus's ministry. Um, He's anointed as king, and now he needs to respond to the idolatry, to the the uh, disobedience of the people of God. And it and we have to our kind of takeaway from this is we have to make a decision. Will we honor God with our lips? but our hearts will be far from him? Or will we truly be repentant from our ways? And when we hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us, whatever he's asking you to do, whatever he's telling you to do, and will you submit and will you follow that will? Or will you take your own will back into your hands? And what we need to be mindful of this is in the same way in, in the gospels, when Jesus is first coming, the place where judgment started was with the people of God began with the children of Israel. And in his second coming, we may be longing for a second coming. We're praying for a second coming. We're looking forward to a second coming. But what we don't realize is that he's going to start the judgment with the church. And in 1 Peter chapter 4... Forward to the rapture. The second coming, I don't want to be Amen. So that means tribulation is It depends how you interpret scripture, but definitely. So First Peter four seventeen says, "For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what outcome will be for those who do not obey the gospel of God?" So we just have to be mindful as we as we walk this walk. We should be we should be longing for and praying for the second coming of Christ, but the same way that the people of Israel were longing for and praying for his first coming and they missed it. Mm. We don't want to not be prepared for when he returns. And remember, we talked about this a few months ago, how the delay of Christ returning is actually an act of grace, which I think is also in Peter, uh, that he says that his delay is for the salvation of many, that the longer that he waits to come, the more of us, uh, the more time we have to get our lives right, the more time we have to, re- uh, to repent, and the more opportunities there are for people to come into the kingdom and be saved. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you for spending time with us during this episode. We pray that this teaching blessed you and brought you closer to understanding God. 
If you'd like to contact us, please email us at corechurch242 at gmail.com. Until next time, know you are loved and covered in prayer.